This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault, and today's episode is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. On July 9th, I will be celebrating my 31st birthday, so happy birthday to me. Today's episode is both about me and not about me. A Letterboxd user made a list marking their favorite film from every year that they were alive, essentially creating a time capsule. Since I have 30 years of data to work with, as I am turning 31, before the best films of the year are out, I figure I make a list using a nice round number of 30. 30 films. One from every year from 1989 to 2019. Some of these movies I would deem the best of the year. Others, just personal highlights. This list isn't what my favorite movie would have been through each year, as I did not see Do the Right Thing in 1989, and even if I did, I highly doubt I would have understood Spike Lee's masterpiece. I'm sure a good chunk of my favorite films of my early years would have been stuff like The Lion King, D2, Mighty Ducks, and Flubber. I've been doing this podcast for over five years now, so I imagine most longtime listeners have a good idea about who I am and what films I gravitate to. But for new listeners, or those just listening for the first time, I was born just outside Toronto, Canada, and started to become interested in film in my preteen years when my mother would borrow films like The Birds in North by Northwest from our local library. I very slowly started to get into film, and by the time I had entered college I had read several film books and knew about the classics, but certainly hadn't seen most of them. Over the following decade, I became a film expert as much as an amateur can be, having seen most important films and reading about both the history and the movies themselves. Sometimes it could be an addiction, and having a letterbox account for the last few years has certainly upped my dopamine levels of watching and logging films. My only criteria for this list is that a director may only appear once to encourage me to show more variety. To start the list off, in 1989, we have Do the Right Thing, directed by Spike Lee. I can't remember the first time I watched this movie, probably in college or not long after, but its portrayal of race relations sizzling up on a hot summer day in Brooklyn left an indelible mark on young me. We should always do the right thing, but what is the right thing? And what if the right thing in one moment is not the right thing another time? Spike's films have been thought-provoking, and none more so than this one. The 90s might be some of my biggest blind spots in film history, As a whole, the decade didn't totally interest me, both as a young person, but also as an adult going back and filling in the gaps. I still love all the picks I've made, but there's little competition for some of these slots. For 1990, we have Miller's Crossing, directed by the Coen brothers. After falling in love with No Country for Old Men, I became obsessed with the Coens and would buy all their box sets of their works that I could find. One such collection I bought contained three of their movies, all of which I had never seen. The crime drama with a touch of comedy and killer performances from Gabriel Byrne and Marsha Gay Harden hit me hard. It was tough having this be the only representative of the Coens on this list as Fargo and Old Brother Worth that were originally on the list before I put a self-imposed rule of one film per director. For 1991, I chose The Silence of the Lambs, directed by Jonathan Demme. For people that know me, know that I have an aversion to horror films. I hate being scared, and probably stems from the fact that I never watched horror movies as a child, both because I wasn't allowed to, and because I had no interest when they were made available to me. In recent years, I've tried to fill in as many gaps as I could, realizing I have a fondness for the original universal horror monster movies. A few years ago, I decided that I could handle some things like The Silence of the Lambs, a movie regarded more for being a thriller than straight-up horror. I made sure I watched it with my wife, during the middle of the day, and with the lights on. 
I fell in love with one of the best crafted movies of all time. This film, as well, may be a clock with a thousand-piece mechanism, all working delicately and perfectly in sync, to be admired as more than just something to look at, but instead, it is high art. For 1992, we have My Cousin Vinny, directed by Jonathan Lynn. It up because I know you got enough pressure on you already, but we agreed to get married as soon as you won your first case. Meanwhile, 10 years later, my niece, the daughter of my sister, is getting married. My biological clock is ticking like this, and the way this case is going, I ain't never getting married. Lisa, I don't need this. I swear to God, I do not need this right now, okay? I got a judge that's just aching to throw me in jail. An idiot who wants to fight me for $200. Slaughtered pigs. Giant loud whistles. I ain't slept in five days. I got no money. A dress code problem. And a little murder case, which in the balance holds the lives of two innocent kids. Not to mention your biological clock. My career. Your life. Our marriage. And let me see. What else can we pile on? Is there any more shit we could pile on to the top of the outcome of this case? Is it the first time I saw this movie was in film school. In one of my dialect acting classes, everyone was given a scene from this movie as we had to do a New York accent. Needless to say, my accent was terrible as I sound like Sylvester Stallone after having a stroke, but the comedy was undeniable. I went back to watch the movie and was blown away. To me, it was always a punchline due to Marissa Tomei winning an Oscar for her turn in the film. Thankfully, the movie's reputation has been salvaged and now is widely regarded as a comedic masterpiece. For 1993, I went with Dazed and Confused, directed by Richard Linklater. I also became aware of this film during college, but not because of any classes. Being 19, fresh out of high school, and unsure of my future and a wide variety of friends, this movie spoke deeply to me. You drift in and out of groups of people as they're about to finish a school year. The pace is so relaxed you often forget you are watching a movie. This might be due to the stone nature of the subjects and viewers like me. The soundtrack was filled with songs from Foghat, Aerosmith, ZZ Top, Peter Frampton, and more, which made it even more enjoyable. For 1994, I picked Ed Wood, directed by Tim Burton. It will be a running theme that a lot of these I watched during my college years as I was exposed to more cinema while living in residence. It was easy to borrow movies from other people's collections. My roommate David was a huge Johnny Depp fan and owned every movie of his on DVD. I had never seen Ed Wood before, so I checked it out and loved the old Hollywood story about passion and ingenuity despite not having the most talent, something I can relate to in more ways than I want to admit. For 1995, there's Devil in a Blue Dress, directed by Carl Franklin. This movie is the most recent film on the list that I have watched. I only saw this last month and it blew me away. I'm a huge noir and neo-noir fan, and this checked all the boxes. Lots of smoking, an unreliable narrator, a femme fatale you don't know if you can trust, and a conspiracy that goes all the way up to the top. Denzel Washington gives a fantastic performance as a reluctant man thrust into working as an investigator. The only negative thing I have to say is how mad I am that a sequel wasn't even made, despite them setting it up at the ending of the movie. For 1996, we have The Birdcage. I actually am recording this bit after the show and coming back to it because I messed up and said Fargo for the pick and I already have a Coen Brothers movie. Overall, 1996 was pretty bad with the only other notable films coming from directors I mention elsewhere. I don't think this movie has aged terribly well, but it contains probably the most magnetic performance from Robin Williams' entire career. 
I still giggle to myself thinking about the, you do fossy, 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 but you keep it all inside bit. That when you see this stunning, smoldering creature, she transcends your desire to chew, she electrifies you. Something starts in your pelvis and works its way towards your heart, where it becomes heart slash pelvis. Yes? Coming. What about me? What do I do? Do I just stand here like an object? No. You do an eclectic celebration of the dance. You do fussy, fussy, fussy. You do Martha Graham, Martha Graham, Martha Graham. Or Twyla, Twyla, Twyla. Or Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd. Or Madonna, Madonna, Madonna. But you keep it all inside. All right, just work on that. I'll be right back. For 1997, I chose L.A. Confidential, directed by Curtis Hansen. This is another movie I only somewhat recently watched, for the first time viewing it only a few years ago. My wife and I were on a noir binge and trying to catch up with the genre's best outings, and I couldn't believe it took me so long to watch this flick. The three detective storylines, all crisscrossing one another who are investigating the same crime but with different methods, is a beast of a story. The suspense and intrigue keeps you guessing and on edge of your seat the entire time. For 1998, I picked The Truman Show. I remember when this movie came out being enthralled by the poster having never seen a turbo mosaic before. I was too young to see it, but picking apart the different images of Jim Carrey when I saw it at the movie theaters or in Blockbuster fascinated me. I probably watched this movie for the first time in high school, and while I always found Jim Carrey funny, it was the first time I noticed an actual performance from him and made me take note. For 1999, I went with The Talented Mr. Ripley, directed by Anthony Minghella. I put off watching this movie for the longest time because I thought it was something it wasn't. I don't remember exactly what, but I decided I didn't like it, so why bother? When I finally caught up with it in college, the visceral nature of it almost knocked me out. This ensemble cast, led by an utterly creepy Matt Damon, has become an all-time favorite of mine. For 2000, I really wanted to go with Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? But I already had a Coen Brothers movie on this list, so that was next. Instead, I picked Snatch, directed by Guy Ritchie. Now, there is a problem with pikers or gypsies. What are you doing, Potter? Get out of the way, mate. can't really understand much of what is being said. You tell me. Come back to Cadron. He's thrown ill. Fuck, man. Tell me, Mickey. It's not Irish. It's not English. How are you? Well, it would have been for the horses, you know. It's just, well, it's just piking. Fuck me. Just look at the size of it. How big are you? Hey, kids. How big is he? A big man, that's for sure. Hey, man. Come and look at the size of this fella. Bet you backs a little. Conscious work. Ah. Uh, you look like a bachelor. Get out of the way, Mickey. See if the fellas would like a drink. No, oh, I the murder one. We know murder and done around here, I don't mind telling you. Get your hands out of there, you cheeky little joy. Cup of tea for the big fella. Come on. Don't be silly, Mickey. Over the man of I first saw this movie sometime during high school, and it quickly became my favourite movie of all time, and one that I still rate very highly. For a time, when I would start seeing a new girl and we would watch each other's favorite movies, every one of them didn't care for Snatch, which led for my friend Nadia to tell me that this movie was cursed, or I hadn't found the right girl yet. Luckily, when I showed this to the last woman I started to date, she liked it so much, I married her. For 2001, I settled on Ocean's Eleven, directed by Steven Soderbergh. I could have picked any number of better movies that I also love, but I had to go with Ocean's Eleven, a movie that every time it would come on TV, I would sit down and watch. The entire ensemble is so perfect, and there's nothing like a great heist that comes together. For 2002, I picked Road to Perdition, directed by Sam Mendes. This is a film that was recommended to me in college after knowing nothing about it. It became a movie I preached to others to watch as well. It features probably the most complicated role Tom Hanks has ever portrayed in a very long time, and great supporting turns from Jude Law, Paul Newman, and Daniel Craig. 
For 2003, my favorite movie from this year was probably Lost in Translation, directed by Sofia Coppola. I originally had Mystic River as my pick, but switched it up. The melancholy nature of this film that just oozes sadness as two lost souls find each other in Tokyo for very different reasons is both heartbreaking, but a beautiful reminder that soulmates aren't just loves. Sometimes they could be friends, and sometimes they could be strangers. For 2004, it had to be The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, directed by Wes Anderson. The Belafonte was a long-range sub-hunter during the Second World War, which we bought from the U.S. Navy for $900,000. This is my mentor, Lord Mandrake. He's dead now. The sauna was designed by an engineer from the Chinese space program, and we keep a Swedish masseuse on staff. Here's where we do all our different science projects and experiments and so on. This is the kitchen, which contains probably some of the most technologically advanced equipment on the ship. Eleanor put together a top-notch research library for us with a complete first edition set of the Life Aquatic Companion series. We process our own rushes and keep a cutting room on board so we can do an assembly while we're shooting. I can't find them. I was in high school by this age, but I didn't see the movie right away. I remember my parents hated it, but the comedy just tickled me right. It became one of my all-time favorites, and the morning after my bachelor party, my best man who threw the event drove me to a small, independent cinema where he booked a private screening of the movie for me and my crew and my bride-to-be joined as we ate pancakes and I tried to recover from my hangover. For 2005, we have The New World, directed by Terrence Malick. About a year or so ago, I wanted to do an episode covering the career of Terrence Malick since he's such an interesting character and had only seen The Tree of Life and The Thin Red Line, so I set off on watching all of his films in chronological order and fell in love with his adaptation of Pocahontas. His slow pacing and transcendental style of filmmaking was perfect for this story, while still structured enough to not lose its point, making it peak Malick for me. I never did make that show, but maybe in the future I will. Of course, it would require me to actually watch Song to Song, though. For 2006, I chose The Prestige, directed by Christopher Nolan. I didn't see this movie when it first came out, and don't really have a recollection of when I first did, but when I finally did watch it, I adored it. This is Nolan at his best. The story is complicated and confusing, and the characters are unreliable. But it also features amazing set pieces and spectacles that will blow your mind. The whole cast works together brilliantly, and the ending will leave your jaw on the floor. For 2007, there's Zodiac, directed by David Fincher. Going back to my Silence of the Lambs statement, it took me a while to watch this movie, despite hearing how great it was. It was post-college, and I rented it to watch with an ex, and sufficiently creeped me out, but the madness and search for truth was so engaging, I didn't care that I was on edge the entire time. For 2008, I went with In Bruges, directed by Martin McDonough. We were getting to an era where I was watching the movies near their release dates. I was in college at the time and went to a place called Pacific Mall where they sold a lot of bootleg movies out in the open and I picked up this flick. It was so dark and yet utterly hilarious, I felt terrible for loving it so much. I've shown this movie to a few other people during a point that was slowly becoming a cult classic and they have all had the same reaction. For 2009, I went with Inglorious Bastards directed by Quentin Tarantino. Originally, I had Fantastic Mr. Fox, but having a Wes Anderson flick already on the list, I had to change it. This is my favorite QT film due to the pure evil performance from Christoph Waltz and the pure joy from watching the bastards kill Nazis. I mean, who would gleefully want to get rid of all the fascists in the world in such a noticeable manner? The script just crackles with humor and tension all blended together with a great payoff. 
For 2010, I have selected Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, directed by Edgar Wright. It still angers me to this day that this film didn't get the audience it deserved when it first came out. Sure, it's become a bit of a cult hit since Edgar Wright's stature has only grown, but this lovable video game slash comic book slash action flick slash comedy slash romance and whatever else you want to call it that takes place in my beloved Toronto deserves better. I saw this movie in theaters three times and I'd still love to rewatch it at my home. For 2011, I picked Moneyball, directed by Bennett Miller. We got 38 home runs and 120 RBIs. Guys, we're still trying to replace Giambi. I told you we can't do it. We can't do it. Now, what we might be able to do is recreate him. Recreate him in the aggregate. The what? Jombie's on base percentage was 477. Damon's on base, 324. And Almeida's was 291. Add that up and you get. Do you want me to speak? What point are you again? 1092. Divided by three. 364. That's what we're looking for. Three ball players, three ball players whose average OBP is 364. I love baseball and was a big fan of the Michael Lewis book, having read it beforehand, and I somehow made a book about stats and money so exciting and funny, while capturing the essence of what makes baseball so perfect. This movie was also the first flick that my wife and I saw together, so it holds a special place in my heart. For 2012, we have The Master, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. This movie reminds me so much of the process involved at acting school. Now, this movie takes things much further and goes to some dangerous places, but the essence is still there. The twin lead performances from Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman is just about the best acting ever captured on screen. For 2013, I selected The Great Beauty, directed by Paolo Sorrentino. Every once in a while, you exit a movie theater just move beyond words, and sometimes words just flow out of you. I've written plenty of movie reviews before, but my mind was absolutely buzzing after seeing this Italian film. When I got home, I banged out a review that I contend might be one of the best things I've ever written because this movie inspired me so much. For 2014, I decided to go with Love and Mercy, directed by Bill Pollard. I had just finished reading a biography on Brian Wilson not long before I eventually saw this movie, and the attention to detail was surprisingly accurate, something not often found in biopics. Using two actors to portray Wilson at two very different points in his life sounded odd at first, but Paul Dano and John Cusack pulled it off marvelously. For 2015, it's The Big Short, directed by Adam McKay. I had enjoyed McKay's The Other Guys, a cop movie masquerading as a Ponzi scheme explanation, but I didn't think he had the ability to clearly and cleverly explain the financial crisis of 2008, making bankers respectable characters, until the rug gets pulled out from everyone's feet and that we realize the damage they have done to the country. Inserting shots of Margot Robbie and Selena Gomez explaining complicated banking terminology in layman's term was the icing on the cake. Here's Margot Robbie in a bubble bath to explain. Basically, Louis Rainieri's mortgage bonds were amazingly profitable for the big banks. They made billions and billions on their 2% fee they got for selling each of these bonds. But then they started running out of mortgages to put in them. After all, there are only so many homes and so many people with good enough jobs to buy them, right? So the banks started filling these bonds with riskier and riskier mortgages. Thank you, Banjo. That way, they can keep that profit machine churning, right? By the way, these risky mortgages are called subprime. So whenever you hear subprime, think shit. 
Our friend Michael Burry found out that these mortgage bonds that were supposedly 65% AAA were actually just mostly full of shit. So now he's going to short the bonds, which means to bet against. Got it? For 2016, I went with Hell or High Water, directed by David McKenzie. This breakout film by the Scottish McKenzie hits all the right spots for me. It's a neo-Western crime thriller that tackled big subject matter and showing us the power that banks have over the little guy. Much like The Great Beauty, after watching this film, I was immediately compelled to write about it. Chris Pine and Ben Foster carry the movie as bank-robbing brothers with a very specific plan in place to get back their family's farmhouse before the banks take control of it and kick Pine's family off the land. For 2017, I chose A Ghost Story, directed by David Lowry. This little quiet film that starts out with the death of a man who then becomes a ghost, one that is just in a bedsheet, and is forced to observe the endless passage of time at the house where he lived. He sees his wife grieve his loss and eventually move. A new family moves in, then out. Drifters take over the house to party in, and eventually, the end of time. This movie has almost no dialogue, and we just watch as time and reality passes through our fingers. Is an incredibly moving movie with a unique aspect ratio. For 2018, my pick is Roma, directed by Alfonso Cuaron. I was lucky to see this Netflix movie at the Tiff Bell Lightbox Theater with friend of the show Sammy Felchenfeld, and we both adored this intimate movie about a housekeeper in Mexico. The stunning black and white cinematography and expansive sound design do wonders to transport us to 1970 and the life of Cleo. After making this list, I realized that I can't count. Sure, from 1989 to 2019, I aged 30 years, but a movie a year from that timeline is actually 31, not 30. I guess since I'm turning 31 next week, it makes sense, so here's my final selection. For 2019, my top film was The Last Black Man in San Francisco, directed by Joe Talbot. I won't go too in-depth here as I recently made my pick as the number one film released by A24 and it also topped my best films of 2019 episode. But in case you haven't seen this movie, do yourself a favor and check out this love letter to San Francisco and the pains of being pushed out of a neighborhood that is your home. The cinematography is beyond stunning and the acting by Jimmy Fails and Jonathan Majors is perfect. This wraps up my list of picking a movie a year since I was born. I struggled with a few years due to not being able to double dip into certain directors, but I made it all work. If you want to relive the list, you can find me at letterbox.com slash DGAPA, and I'll include the list in the show notes. ContraZoom is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. I'd like to thank Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. Follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. If you have any thoughts on this list, or if you have your own similar list, send me an email. ContraZoomPod at gmail.com and I'll share it at a later episode. Also, it would be a great help if you would rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts as it'll help us grow and find new listeners. Thank you for listening.
1996, we have Fargo. Crap. 